Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome aboard show number 101 for Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and as we start our countdown to the next century mark, we're glad you've joined us. Ben, how's it going in Washington? Hey, Chris. It was a somber weekend, as I guess you'd expect, given the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. It certainly seems hard to believe. Back when this happened, I was a senior VP at U.S. Airways and running the marketing department. And on the morning that happened, my head of pricing, Stephen Ussery, had a TV in his office. So almost as soon as the media started reporting the event, we were aware on our floor of what was happening. And obviously that changed the course of history. But that morning it was, you know, when they first reported it, they said a small plane hit the tower and like, how did that happen? That seemed weird. And then when the second plane hit, it was pretty clear that this was an attack and such. And um, the two things that come to memory from that morning so closely were how quickly my head of pricing sort of looked at me and said, I think this is Osama bin Laden. I think he said that, you know, at 9.01, actually. Wow. And we talked about why that might be the case. And we talked about the 1993 truck bombing of the towers and things. And then when all the airports were closed later that morning, when they reopened, Reagan National did not reopen right away. And that was such an important base for U.S. Airways, now an important base for American Airlines. And uh, up until it reopened about a month later, now, maybe people in Washington knew, and maybe some people even in U.S. Airways knew, but most of us, even me as a senior officer, until a couple of days before that airport reopened, it was uncertain whether it was ever going to reopen. And we were thinking about what would U.S. Airways be if DCA Airport actually closed permanently. And it's crazy to think of all the ways that 9-11 has affected the world. But from an airline standpoint, those are the things I remember from that morning, at least. How about you, Chris? Well, I had left the airline business. I had left American at the top of the year in 2001 and was at a large PR firm in downtown Washington. American was one of my largest clients, so I was still connected to American. And then another important client was Orbitz that was getting ready to do its launch um, that fall. And then meanwhile, a third small client was this little company called Argonbright Security. Actually, they weren't the client. They had been purchased by a European uh, security uh, corporation, Securicore, and we were involved in the rebranding of Argonbright Security to the Securicore brand when all this was going on and kind of watched that spot for a minute. I'll get back to it. But um, so we saw what was happening like you did. We walked three blocks up to the American Airlines office to start helping them and, and supporting the government affairs team that, that was there. And then we quickly started paying attention to uh, our, our calls from our Orbitz client about how they were reacting to it. And then somebody else from my team called and said, Argonbright Security uh, processed probably a third to half of the terrorists who got through security. And so the, all of a sudden they were in the middle of this story as well. So we certainly had a three ring circus um, going on. And then of course the, eventual impact to U.S. Airways um, through all this is what led to my joining you at U.S. Airways as they were assembling or building out the rest of the management team to do a restructuring. So um, it was certainly a, a, a surreal time for so many people in a, 
and still, I think it, it pings a lot of us with sadness 20 years later thinking about this. So. Well, you're right about that, Chris. And, you know, for all of us in the industry and have worked in the industry and all of our listeners and everything, today's industry in many ways is defined by that event because it spawned first a series of bankruptcies that most of the major airlines notably not Southwest, but most of the major airlines used bankruptcy to restructuring. Then following that, a wave of consolidation that made eight big airlines into four huge airlines. And that sort of paved the way for ULCCs because prices went up. And so the industry, the way it is today, in many ways was shaped by that event and the things that followed. Very much so. You know, And again, like you point out, 20 years later, we're still we're still processing the ramifications of that in so many ways. And I think it also probably put the industry in a much better place to deal with COVID with regard to kind of their financial resources and how to react quickly to, to uh, guard their financial resources and, and make sure they had enough capital to weather this through. Well, clearly this week's news uh, pales in, in comparison to what was going on 20 years ago, but we still have some, uh, let's call it a little more boring news compared to uh, 9-11 and 2001. So let's cover off a few news items before we get to our guest. Uh, ben, first up, COVID news again, uh, even before President Biden's speech last Thursday, which essentially mandates COVID vaccines for millions of American workers. More and more airlines in the U.S. seem to be stepping up on their own policies. Alaskan-American told their employees they would have to take sick leave if they were unvaccinated and had a miss work due to a COVID quarantine. United went a step further and said anyone who was not vaccinated would be put on unpaid furlough effective October 3rd. That doesn't give you much time to get vaccinated. Maybe it's me, but these actions seem to be generating relatively muted response from union leaders. Uh, ben, is that your take? It is my take, Chris, and as I think we talked about a show or two ago, when United first made this their first announcement, I was surprised that there wasn't a union response quickly, which made me think they had probably spoken to the unions first and sort of said, this is what we want to do and worked out sort of an agreement that you know, maybe the unions wouldn't come out and say, we support this, but they wouldn't go out and say, we don't like this either. And my guess is Alaska's probably done the same thing. They probably talked to their unions and said, this is what we're going to need to do. We need to get more people vaccinated. And I bet they had some sort of a, an agreement. You know, I'll say, Chris, I know this isn't a politics show and we always try not to make it about politics. I don't know what I think about President Biden's mandate of businesses having to mandate vaccines, right? But I like it when companies on their own decide this is what we think is best for our employees. And so I really respect Alaska and American and United for all they've done on this and other airlines who sort of put things in place. My general view is that incentives really work. And if companies and schools and stores and things make it harder to participate in normal society if you don't get yourself vaccinated, if you can, of course, then that is a better incentive than sort of this mandate from top down saying, do it or else. Well, my sense is even from the business community, the reaction to President Biden's uh, announcement last week was, again, re relatively muted. The Business Roundtable, the Chambers of Commerce, those kinds of organizations are almost looking for some cover because they don't they don't know what to do either and everyone's trying to move towards the light of getting past this current situation with the pandemic and the delta spike so you know in some ways they're kind of looking for somebody else to make a tough decision too but we'll just have to see how this plays out another somewhat well-worn topic we've talked about quite a bit you know, frustration and bad behavior in the skies Southwest announced they won't be bringing back in-flight booze until at least 2022. That matches the decision of some of the other major carriers. The TSA announced that they are doubling fines for not complying with mask requirements at airports and public transportation systems. Although when I flew this weekend, it looked like a bunch of people didn't get the memos. They were walking around DFW without a mask. Meanwhile, 
All the stress continues to wear on airline employees. As we discussed last week, Southwest pilots sued the airline about work rules. And now the American Airlines pilots say they will begin informational picketing over the coming weeks, expressing their concerns about fatigue, overscheduling, and even showing up at their crew hotels and being turned away. We talked last week about leverage in the management labor relationship, Ben. Clearly, we're getting some breakthrough cases of COVID fatigue, just like we're getting breakthrough cases of COVID. But again, let's look at earnings results next month and those report outs. If you're an airline executive, do you see this as an opportunity to build a narrative for your employees or for your investors? That's a great question, Chris. I actually think it's an opportunity to build a narrative for both and to, again, not sort of state a my way or the highway kind of an approach, but to state here's where we are and here's what we need to do. There's no question that airline workers, pilots, flight attendants, airport employees, everyone are being really stressed right now. And they're forced to deal with conflicts that they're not all necessarily trained to deal with. They also bear the brunt of labor shortages at individual airports or in places where certain operations are outsourced, maybe labor shortages at those companies. So maybe maintenance isn't as available or there aren't quite as many people working at the airport. So the lines are longer and it takes longer to board and all kinds of things. And, you know, the frontline employees sort of feel the brunt of all that. So it's not surprising that they're going to work every day and they're feeling the fatigue of this. It's unfortunate that it gets the point of litigation in Southwest case or picketing in Americans case that the two can't sit down and say, hey, let's talk about how to make this work and think about what our capacity should be so that we can better match labor supply to flying and things like that. But I think it's it's unfortunate that it's gotten to the point with those two airlines. Let's hope it doesn't get that way with others. But the reason that those things are happening isn't totally surprising. But like you said, I think with earnings reports is a good way to talk about what bookings are looking like right now, how many people are not booking compared to what was expected given the Delta variant, what the holiday periods look like and what people's expectations are for demand during that time. And that sort of puts everybody on the same, at least, um, data mindset of here's why we need to start doing things to keep people, employees engaged in the company and customers interested in coming back to fly again. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I think the uh, key thing is to keep it real and you know, as you kind of watch what's being said over the past six weeks or so as it relates to operational issues and and other kinds of things, labor relations, airline executives are kind of laying the groundwork for acknowledging and, and, and pointing to what they need to do better internally as well, whether it be on the customer service side or just listening to their employees a little bit more who are out on the front line every day working hard, sometimes taking a lot of guff and um, making the operation go as best as they can. So let's kind of watch the space again over the next few weeks and see how it plays out. I think that's right, Chris. You know, Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. So Ben, one more news item before we get to our guest. Uh, Here in the U.S., the Biden administration and the airline-slash-aviation industry announced a target of 20% lower aviation emissions by 2030, relying in part on a tax credit to accelerate the production and use of sustainable aviation fuel, known as SAF, that is produced from used fats, oils, grease, as well as forest and crop waste. Is this a good thing for the industry to be taking on right now? 
Well, Chris, I think it's a fair thing for the industry to take on, although getting people comfortable with flying again and getting governments to sort of open up because it's safe to open up again is probably more important. But 2030 is a long way away and it's a real short way away. When I saw this, I certainly liked the initiative. What I thought about though is, you know, this is under nine years from now. And there are a lot of planes flying today, Chris, that are going to be flying then. And so I, I don't know enough and maybe some of our listeners do. And if you do, please write us and talk to us about this, which is I don't know enough about the, the sustainable fuels, whether you can literally just put that fuel in an existing plane and the engines will work just fine and won't change the maintenance cycle and won't corrode or do anything, or if changes are going to have to be made to current technology airplanes to adapt to these new fuels. And that's what makes me most concerned about that date. There's a lot of equipment that if it's going to have to be modified in any way, could potentially represent, you know, a big capital expense for the industry, given that so many planes flying today are going to be flying nine years from now. On the other hand, if it's working with fuels and thinking about how expensive they're going to be or cheaper, obviously the idea of becoming more sustainable is a great thing for the planet and a good thing for the industry to adopt. That 2030 date just seems awfully close to me, though. And it's it's a priority, but is it the top priority for the next six months? Probably not. See, I saw the 20% as kind of a fair compromise. It's certainly not as aggressive as what they're talking about in Europe and certainly not as punitive or aggressive. Maybe punitive is the, the wrong word here as we're trying to save the planet, but as what it could have been. And so I think when people were focused on a 20% target number, the industry was like, let's take this before it gets uh, pulled off the table. So um, it's going to be aggressive still, and it's going to require investment and um, certainly expediting the use of these uh, alternative fuels. But it, it's much better than the alternative, which um, could have been higher targets or forcing the carriers to do things with regard to retiring planes and other kinds of things that they're just not ready to do. Well, we'll be right back with our conversation with Dave Dixon, the former chair of the airline audit practice for EY. But first, a plug for our friends at Clear. Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. We're back with Airlines Confidential and very excited to bring in this week's guest. Dave Dixon was the global airline sector leader for EY Accounting for over 10 years. And I have known Dave since he was our accountant at Spirit Airlines, and he's just seen airlines all over the world. Dave, it's wonderful to have you here. Why don't you first give our listeners a quick background of your experience in the airline industry? Thanks, Ben. It's great to be on. I think I think I looked through you. I've listened to a lot of the podcast. I think I'm your first official accountant on the podcast, so I feel honored to be there. Yeah. So Ben, with me, I've I was at EY for 37 years, and I retired about a year ago. And my entire career, I served the airline industry. And unlike you guys that chose to be in the industry, I kind of fell into it. My first job out of college, working for at the time Arthur Young was was on American Airlines. And as you recall, back in the days of the 80s and 90s, American was a real development platform for a lot of the stuff that is commonplace in the industry today. Some really good things like, you know, loyalty programs that were invented there and some things like value pricing that maybe maybe didn't go over as well. But at that time, Bob Crandall, you know, was was generally thought of as the industry leader in management development. And he had a group of guys that were affectionately referred to as the Brat Pack and and I, Ben, I know you're one of those, and David Cush and Doug Parker, Tom Horton, and I throw Peter Ingram in too, because all you guys moved on from there to be airline CEOs, which EY's strategy, I, I can't say it was you know the, the hardest to figure out at the time, was basically 
follow around a bunch of smart guys that ended up being CEOs at their own airlines. And that, that served us very well over the years. So, so Dave, uh, you allegedly have retired. You said you retired from EY a year ago, but what, what have you been up to since? Yeah, so EY, Chris, has, has a mandatory retirement at 60. And, you know, I, I traveled a bit and I tried my golf game, but I pretty quickly figured out that that was not going to be a sustainable event for me in my retirement. So, and like you guys, you, you can't be in an industry for close to 40 years and not have it, have it in your blood. So I still do a lot of stuff in the industry. I keep up with a lot of contacts. And, and the industry, as you guys know very well, is, is very small in the number of participants. So it's a, it's a group that knows each other and we connect and stay connected. So today um, I'm, doing, I'm on a board of, I'm on one board right now of Green Africa Airways, which is a, a cool startup in Nigeria a very underserved area. And then I have a couple other ventures that I'm working on. I would say kind of both in the distribution space. So one, uh, one kind of in the, you know, kind of ancillary distribution upgrades and things. And then one is more I call oil focused, which is, which is really an area I think will continue to evolve. And, you know, I, I kind of count myself as an airline historian with the opportunities we've had at EY to, to work with so many different airlines, I get to see a different perspective. And so I've, I've got a lot of history. So maybe I'll teach and write something one of these days as well. I think we'd all learn a lot from that, Dave. So Dave, I have a friend who has this funny sort of idea that if you were sent to another planet that you knew had the exact same resources of the earth, but no one had ever lived there before, and you could take a hundred people with you, who would you take? And he follows that up with, he says, the only thing I know for sure is I wouldn't take an accountant. <laughs> and so I'm wondering how you would respond to him and tell us why accounting has been such a dynamic, exciting career. You know, it, it is, uh, it's certainly an underserved career. I think until they did the movie, The Account, we were very underappreciated, but that certainly that guy helped us out some. But, now, accounting, I think, like most finance functions, has its kind of, you know, monotonous areas that you have to work through. But airlines, especially when I got into airlines, you know, it wasn't really like banking or traditional industry. If you think about the 80s and you're just post-deregulation, lots of things under development and, and working on American, you know, you had spinoffs of Sky Chefs and Sabre. You had creation of the Advantage program and the massive growth that it they had a mutual fund. I was able to work with Bill Quinn, as you, I'm sure you remember Bill, uh, on the mutual fund startup that they started up. So it was really very, I was lucky at some level that I got the opportunity to, to do all those things and see that. And, and my philosophy and what I was taught by my predecessors at EY was, you know, especially in the old days when, you know, when I came out of uh, college, there were only 52 accounting standards and they've given up numbering them now because there's so many. But, uh, but back then it was more about, you know, when you had an accounting issue, the first thing you did and the most important thing you did was to, to really understand the business and the reason behind the transaction, get into the depth of that. And then that would generally lead you to, to get into the right answer. But you just to fully dismiss the notion that accountants are not dynamic, I know four current or former airline CEOs that are former accountants. You guys want to take a guess? Uh, David Cush, maybe? Not Cush. Not Cush? Two um, of them are current CEOs. Current CEOs? Two of the big four. So let me give you the list. So Doug Parker's a, C a CPA? Uh, Doug is not. Gary Kelly oh, actually started oh, with, with us at Arthur Young back in the day. Tom Horton, Ed Bastian, and Brad Tilden, who's just recently retired from Alaska. There are probably more, but those guys who I've worked with over the years all started their careers uh, in, in the CPA world. And, and, and to me, and I will tell you another story, Gerard Arpey told me that he had advised his niece at one point to always start in the, in the accounting world, because no matter what business you ended up doing, understanding how the score was kept was a really critical part. And so a few years doing kind of accounting and understanding the nuts and bolts of that is a great place to start, even though, you know, like these four guys, a lot of people move on to other bigger, better things. I was just a little bit of a slow learner get around to things a little later in life. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Dave, I always tell PR and communication students, take accounting and finance classes because they end up running everything. So It is an important element, yep. So 
you kind of piqued our interest with the dynamics of accounting, Dave, but what do you think are a few dynamic parts of airline accounting? You know, that's a great question, Chris, and I will tell you, there's one that kind of shines above all, and and I'm old enough that I remember all the different iterations, but that's kind of the loyalty accounting. Americans started it in the early 80s, and it was one of those things, like most new transactions, that, you know, was kind of little understood, and there was no guidance on it, so you kind of had to create your own way. But if you look at loyalty accounting, you just think of the nature of, of a loyalty program. You've got points, and you've got points coming from different sources, and the points are fungible. Like when I use a point, it's not clear whether I earned it from flying or my credit card or some other form of, of earning. So because of that um, and the fact that over my 30-year career, we had three totally different accounting models from the old days where people would not book any liability for their points because they said it was just so insignificant because they could settle them back in the day when they weren't full by just giving away a seat that wasn't going to be sold anyway. To fast forward to today, you have you know a program where you have to defer everything. And you're, you're sitting there looking at American Airlines. I'll use them as an example. Uh, you know, If you look at their public records, when they went to the new accounting model for loyalty, they took a $6 billion pre-tax charge basically to adjust the deferral that they had on their books. So their deferral is now almost $10 billion. So you think of the size of that, the scale of that, um, that that's probably the most dynamic. And I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to send all your listeners into the snooze button here, but, uh, but it is an area where I think what's behind the scenes is really critical. And having worked with a lot of airlines, I've seen iterations that were done great. I've seen iterations that weren't, weren't quite as good. So it is an area where I think there's been a lot of evolution over the years and a very critically important area to the industry. And it proved even more important in the pandemic, Dave. As you know, airlines had to find a lot of creative new sources for financing. And we saw Delta, Spirit, Southwest, and others sort of monetize their frequent fire programs, meaning using it as collateral to get a loan to have cash in an uncertain time. What did you think of all that? Do you think these programs actually have the value in them that the marketplace was saw when they were willing to use them as loan collateral? You know, Ben, and you know this as well. I mean, if you go back, these programs have been used historically as in different forms as very points of financing. You had, I think, dip financing done at United back in the day using their loyalty program. You've had points being sold in advance when the airlines needed money. So they would go to their credit card company and they buy a bunch of points in advance to provide financing. So using them as financing is really not the new element. The thing that I think was most interesting about that whole iteration, and I think it's a step in the process, there's gonna be a lot more developments in loyalty. But the thing that was most interesting is for the first time, the airlines really disclosed the programs as more of a business. And I really think they are businesses within a business, but. If you looked at United, United was the first to do it in June. And actually, when United did that in June, one of the reasons they could be a first mover was because of a transaction that Kathy Michael did when I was working on United in 2010, where they were looking at financing it and they actually separated into a separate legal entity, not outside of the airline, but within the airline. And that allowed them then to kind of be a quick mover because they had historical financials for this entity they called Mileage Plus. So it's a very dynamic and evolving area. The value, I think, is honestly much greater than what they've borrowed at. And so I do expect to see a lot more development in that area as we go forward. We'll get right back to our interesting conversation with Dave Dixon. But we want Airlines Confidential listeners to remember that Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections. TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automations tools, configurable and personalized to your unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. So Dave, uh, let's switch gears a bit. Uh, Let's talk about ancillary revenues and how they impact accounting and airline finance and where you think things are going to go with these sources of revenue. 
Yeah, that, that's that's why I listen to y'all's podcast because you guys tell me where things are going to go, and then we can kind of figure out how they should be accounted for. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly think the ancillary world—I'm not sure, honestly. I don't know if we'll see a move away from ancillary. Ancillaries are never going away, but you know, unfortunately for the airlines, one of the big issues we had in the new revenue standard was the the accounting regulators came up with a concept they referred to as distinct. And so a lot of what was Ben for sure when he was at Spirit would have his principal um, uh, ancillary revenues were really not considered distinct. So, for example, a change fee on its own, you would never buy one without the underlying ticket. So they're not separable for accounting. So the real issue that created was more of a reporting issue because, as Ben would tell you, I'm sure that the, the investors and analysts that looked at Spirit loved looking at that line. That's how they judged how you were able to get, you know, additional revenues out of your constituents. And so uh, it was a it was a challenging issue. But I think ancillaries are likely here to stay. One of the companies I work with is really trying to find a better way to distribute them and maybe uh, a more last minute way to kind of sell additional items. And I think that's what we'll see. We'll see more technology applied to, to the distribution of ancillary services either on the airplane or, you know, within the airport environment. Dave, you've talked about loyalty and you've talked about ancillary revenue, two very important things for airlines. What are the other emerging accounting issues that you think airlines are going to face in the coming years? Yeah, the the last couple of years have been very difficult for the airlines. I mean, you're talking about a lot of impairments and other analysis and tax issues and big losses and government funding. And I think for the most part, they've worked through all that, not to say that we're, we're totally out of the woods yet, but I still go back to Ben, what, what drives accounting issues in any industry and airlines are no exception is what is the industry going to do to continue to grow their revenue base and how are they going to do that? And, and I go back again to loyalty. I think loyalty, you know, you, we, if you use United's $5 billion debt that they used for their mileage plus program, if you look at a business valuation of the, of the numbers they reported, that, that business would be worth 20 billion. So I think we'll see a lot of evolution in the loyalty space around, you know, enhancing the models from where they are. You know, historically the airlines have principally sold the access to their programs only to people that could buy miles, which is a pretty high hurdle because as you, you guys know, they're, they're very expensive when they're sold. And so if you go to a world where you want to get more access um, you're going to have to find different ways to transact and get value out of that program. Uh, and that'll, that'll evolve in better utilization of the data, more, more and different participants in the plan, maybe participants that don't sell miles, but get other information. And likely business, business model changes. You know, today, something like 85% of all loyalty points are settled by the airline flying a passenger. And long term, if we look at what's happened since COVID, right? Since COVID, and I, I go back to American because I just pulled up their their 10Q. Their loyalty points have increased since the end of December, pre-COVID, December 19, by by 10%. And again, they ain't flying that many more people in that period. <laughs> they're not redeeming as well, but they're still selling a lot of credit card points. And so there's going to have to be new and different ways to to bring people in to help you know, keep those loyalty passengers comfortable that they're getting value from the program. And so I really expect that to be the biggest driver of, of future issues, whether that, that transacts like a, something like a spinoff, which, which was done internationally, but not really done in the U.S. I don't know if it'll go to that far, but I certainly think there'll be a lot of evolution in that space. And, and likely we'll see some, some kind of important accounting issues come out of that. Yeah, we talked about those loyalty point accumulations a few months back, you know, noting, you know, people sitting around ordering DoorDash and ordering off Amazon is driving up uh, airline uh, frequent flyer balances in ways no one anticipated five or 10 years ago, I guess. Yeah. And, and I, and I, you know, they're just not going to be able to, I mean, if, if the airlines are all a little different in how they satisfy them, but a lot of the travel for loyalty, the big travel was international. And that's still not come back at all, right? And so if the business, depending on how business comes back and how the root structure changes, you know, you're going to have to find different ways to satisfy those those revenue obligations. And so 
I look, I look at that as kind of, you know, that and, and in the distribution space are kind of the important areas, whether it's around ancillary or it's other distribution changes in the, in the industry. Those are probably the areas I would look at that are they're going to drive the biggest change in the business, which will therefore drive the biggest kind of accounting and other considerations. Dave, you mentioned in your self-introduction, you're involved with Green Africa Airways. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to, Chris. It's a really, it's a neat project um, that my buddy and yours, Tom Horton, got me involved in. But Green Africa is a startup Nigerian low-cost carrier uh, based in Lagos. And uh, it's run by a guy that worked in America and is a Nigerian, from a person from Nigeria, but educated in the U.S., now back living in Nigeria, running Green Africa. We just started flying a month ago. And, you know, timing wasn't our luckiest element in Green Africa because, you know, we, we started off two years ago with Max aircraft and that didn't work. And then the pandemic hit after we kind of moved across. And so we're now flying right now with ATRs and that lets us access certain markets that we couldn't. Have. But if you think of Nigeria, it's, it's probably a lot of people in the U.S. aren't that familiar with it. But Nigeria is the largest GDP in Africa and the seventh most populated country in the world. And they have no current LCCs operating there. And so if and it, I love this statistic, I used to use it when I gave speeches in my, my sector role. But if you look at based on domestic travel in Nigeria, on average, every person in Nigeria travels once every 25 years. If you look, wow. at, that, if you look at that stat in the U.S., the average U.S. person travels two and a half times a year. Now, I don't know if Nigeria will get up to the U.S. level, but they're certainly going to get above once every 25 years. And so there is a real opportunity and Ben, you're the expert on it. You, you know what low-cost carriers do and how they promote travel and, and really those opportunities. So I looked at this as a great opportunity to kind of to give back and help with my skills and, and, and what is really a critical element for the development of, of Nigeria and of, of Africa. Well, I certainly wish you and Tom and the whole team at Green Africa best of luck. Being the first mover ULCC in big markets has been a very exciting and very rewarding thing for lots of different airlines around the world. It's great to know that that effort is getting into Africa as well. Dave, on a similar sort of question with the startup, you know, we're just starting. We had the first NFL game this week or first NFL games this week. Everybody's playing fantasy football. If you were drafting a fantasy airline management team, would your first pick be a great operator or a great finance person or maybe even a great marketing person? What do you think? Well, as a CPA, I'd have to say they'd be an auditor, Ben. But <laughs> just the track record is so good. But, but no, I think in reality, as you know, you know, whether you start as a finance guy or as an operator, finance is such an integral part of this industry because you've been through the, the 9-11s where you have all the revenue go off and you've been through the fuel shocks and where your fuel costs quadruples. And so dealing with the financial impacts of an industry with the level of volatility airlines is critical. So I, I do think whether you start as an operator or finance guy, you've got you to really be able to do both to, to survive. But, you know, as a, as a finance guy by background, I'd probably have to, I would go look at where people in, that have started as airline finance guys have ended up. And, and I, I, these are just some people that I've worked with in my career. And you think about guys like Jeff Campbell, who's now the CFO at Amex, or Zane Rowe, who I worked with at United, Zane went from United to run domestic sales at Apple, and now he's at VMware, was actually the interim CEO up until about a month back. Kathy Michaels, who I mentioned earlier, Kathy was, was at United when I was working there before the merger, and Kathy has done a number of CFO roles, but she just got announced uh, as the new CFO of ExxonMobil, which is quite a transition. I'm sure she, she looks back on those days of when the fuel prices were getting her and it really smiles, but... But I, I think a lot of finance guys have been able to take their skills and move it into different industries and venues. And, and I'll tell you one story, you know, kind of in closing to, to tell you that one of the one of the people on that list told me a story that said when they were in the airline world, they kind of missed it when they left. Because in airlines, whether you were making any decision in any other business unit, that the CFO was always involved in that decision because you had to understand the financial implications because it was so critical to survival. And in the business that, that they are in now, it wasn't quite as critical an element. And so they kind of missed that piece of where finance was such an important 
element of the business that, that gave the CFO a, a little broader reach than maybe in, in some traditional industries. So, so I got to go to finance, Ben. It's just who I am. <laughs> well, Dave, this has been great. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to kind of let our listeners in on kind of one special thing you want to share with people, a memorable moment or something interesting that you think uh, you've experienced and, and participated in in the industry. You know, I've done so much in my career, and I, I, most of it I would have to account for just right place, right time. As I said earlier, I didn't, I didn't pick the airlines. The airlines kind of picked me. But, but once you're in it, there's just so many great people and, and the opportunity, you know, like with Ben. I, I didn't know Ben was he was American, although I think we stomped the same ground a little while back then. But, you know, when he got to Spirit, the ability to kind of rekindle those relationships, that, that's been the most important thing. This industry is full of incredibly smart, talented people. And the opportunity to learn and and grow and you know follow them around a little bit and see how much success they've had has really been the the, the joy of my 37 year career. So and hopefully this podcast will create a few more people going into the world of accounting and auditing. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for a real great uh, interview, real great insights on a part of the business that not everybody thinks about, but as you stated really well, is so critically important to any airline. And the airlines that don't do this stuff right often have real challenges and some don't even survive. So we thank you so much for your time and we'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a moment. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it, Chris. Thanks, Dave. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with APEX, the Airline Passenger Experience Association, or IFSA, the International Flight Services Association. But I don't know if all of our listeners know that these two great organizations host a conference together in Long Beach, California, and Airlines Confidential is proud to have been named an official media partner of this conference. So from the 19th to the 21st of October, this conference is going to happen in Long Beach, California, and Airlines Confidential will be there live. If you're in Southern California, come and visit us. Ask us questions live, meet us, tell us what you like about the podcast, and learn about the great things going on for new airline passenger experience issues and in-flight service issues. Hope to see you all in Long Beach on the 19th through 21st of October at the Apex IFSA Conference. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Ben, that was another great get. Thanks for inviting Dave to join us. Now it's time for our listeners' questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, question number one is from Max in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a first-time questioner, long-time listener. I recently flew economy from Maui to Denver on United and was surprised when we were served a full meal shortly after takeoff in coach class. My understanding is airlines have stopped serving meals on domestic flights unless the customer pays for them. Any insight on why this might have happened would be of most interest. Well, thanks, Max, and I hope you enjoyed the meal. I think if you had flown from Los Angeles to Denver, you probably wouldn't have got the meal. <laughs> gotten the meal. I think the issue is that's a long flight, and United has differentiated their service for long flights and international flights too, even though Hawaii isn't international. But Denver, Maui is quite a distance, right? And so they have brought back meals to flights more than a certain amount of time because they recognize it's tough not to eat on a flight that long. So it's great that United and some other airlines have been able to bring back meal service, at least on some flights. 
So thankfully you flew long enough to sort of get that meal. And it was because Hawaii to Denver looks almost like an international flight in terms of the flight distance and things. If you fly domestically on United and go from Denver up to Montana or Chicago, you probably want to eat in the airport beforehand. Yeah, I kind of looked at some of the major carriers and it's really not very consistent with regard to who's doing what and what kind of distance, but United seems to be a little more generous with the food right now than others. That was my take, but uh, someone can correct me if, if that's not right. I think that's right. And they're being, in part, Chris, it's they're being more surgical about where to do it and where not to, and not just making blanket policies of yes or no. And I think that's probably good for their business. Chris, I'm going to let you have a go at this next question. It's from Rahul in Pittsburgh. Hi, Ben and Chris. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I listen every week on my commute, and I want to personally thank you for inspiring the future leaders of aviation. Glad to know we do that, Rahul. Thank you. I'm a lifelong aviation geek who recently graduated from college and am working as a consultant. My dream is to have a long, successful career in aviation and to make an impact on the industry. I've been debating switching to an airline job for a while now, and have even just turned an offer down. However, many people working for big airlines have told me that many of the future executives in the airline industry will come from large consulting firms. I've heard that this is the case due to low salaries and fewer career development opportunities within the airlines for young professionals than before. I was wondering if you think this will be the case, and if you have any advice on when the best time to jump in the airline industry is for young professionals. Thanks, and hope to hear from you guys. A good question, Raul. I'm kind of torn on this one, and Ben, I'm interested in your perspective, too. I, I think in certain parts of the airline ecosystem, if you will, technology certainly being one of them, uh, finance and HR, there's lots of places where airlines are looking for best practices and not necessarily just experience coming within the industry. So I agree that that is um, a consulting role or another industry role um, is useful. Understanding the operations, though, and understanding the business of the business is always going to, I think, be a bigger priority with regard to airlines making hires and how can they move in quickly to understand the organization and make an impact? And so hopefully whatever consulting role you're in is going to do that. If not, you need to be thinking about how your experience translates and be able to tell your story about why working at a consultancy, doing something in another industry is relative to coming to work for an airline. But I wouldn't wait too long because at some point, mid-level management positions start turning into the platform for high potential candidates to move into more executive level positions. And it's going to be harder to kind of come in at a higher level, I think, without industry experience. That's my take. I think that's good advice, Chris. The other thing I'd say, Rahul, and congratulations for thinking about wanting to work in the industry too, though. The other thing I'd say is that the industry always needs and always has room for smart people willing to work hard. And where the industry is today, with many companies having to rethink at least parts of their business, if not their whole business model, it might be even more important now. So depending on what you want to do and how much investment you want to make in your own career, Moving to an airline now, even if you maybe took a pay cut or something, if you could get an offer at a good company that wants to use your skills and you could really add value, might be a way to really improve your your career going forward. Doesn't mean it will, and I'm not suggesting you leave a a real high-paying consulting job and go work at minimum wage or anything like that, but... These are times, meaning tough times in the industry, are when employees can better differentiate themselves within companies and add value. And if you're that kind of professional and an airline's willing to take a flyer on you, it might be a good place for you to prove your mettle. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's accurate, Ben. I mean, the other thing as you were talking to was 
once you're in an organization, there are opportunities to move outside of your area of expertise. So smart lawyers end up running the real estate department and smart finance people end up going to HR or marketing or whatever it might be. And again, you're going to be seen for more opportunities within the organization, I guess is my takeaway. Well, finer wine is next. And speaking of fine, Pratt & Whitney makes some mighty fine jet and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and experience and how they power the future of flight, visit prattwhitney.com. Ben, this finer wine is from Nico in New York City. I was on a flight from London to JFK last week, and we took a six-hour delay on the tarmac because of the weather in the Northeast related to Hurricane Ida. I didn't think airlines could keep us captive like that. This was very uncomfortable, especially sitting there with others in a stuffy plane given COVID. Well, I actually think this is a wine, Chris, although I'm certainly empathetic to Nico having to sit in that plane. You didn't tell us whether they brought you any food or water or you said stuffy, but does that mean it was hot? Did they keep the air conditioning on? I'm not sure. The thing is, though, that there's a rule in the United States for U.S. carriers about called the tarmac delay rule, which is a pilot on, that's held on the ramp, not being able to take off, has to begin the return to the gate before three hours. And that is kind of the rule I think you're referring to when you said, I didn't think airlines could keep us captive like that. But that rule does not apply at foreign airports. So Europe doesn't have that rule. And in London, the airline isn't fined by doing that in that case. And like most long delays, my guess is at one hour, they didn't know it was going to be a six-hour delay. My guess is they forever thought we're going to get out in the next 15 minutes. And that just happened for six hours. <laughs> and while that didn't necessarily make you more comfortable, that's what the airline could do. And all I would ask is that you think about this. Would you have rather the airline canceled the flight and you went had to go the next day or two days or something like that? or got you there six hours later. As terrible as a six-hour delay is on a flight like that, my guess is that was probably a better answer than almost anything that could have happened given the hurricane. I think that's fair. It doesn't sound like a fun experience, but um, not every not every airline flight is, and um, this was one of those that uh, you had to deal with the elements. So speaking of delays, time for our weekly shout-outs so we can get this show to the gate and not delay you anymore. I'd like to give my shout-out to Cobra and One Beta, the COVID-sniffing canines that are part of a pilot project at Miami International Airport. To prove the point that sometimes dogs are more worthy than humans, they have a 96 to 98% success rate in identifying someone with covid they train first by learning to detect laurel wilt, a fungus that can kill certain trees. So let's watch this space again and see where this uh, skill could be put to better use. You know, Chris, um, I own a beagle and they supposedly have these wonderful noses and can do all <laughs> sorts of things. And I just can't imagine that my beagle could be trained to be that practical. I think that's a fantastic shout out. My shout out goes to Porter Airlines up in Canada who started flying this week after not flying since COVID really started. And I think that's great. Porter's a great airline and Canada has been in many ways, more restrictive in the U.S., in part because their vaccine rollout was slower. But Canada needs Porter. Canada needs competition. Porter will be starting flights into the U.S. as well. So I think it's great for Porter customers and certainly Porter employees that Porter is up and flying again. That's another good one, Ben. Let's all give Porter our best wishes as they get off the ground again. So that's a wrap and hope everyone has a great week. Thanks for joining us on Airlines Confidential. We'll see you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.